Hello and welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. And I'm Danielle George. Oh, and Marianne, I'm really sad to say that this is our final episode. We spent the last five weeks talking all things research communication, from science blogging to protecting lions. And from governmental policy to statistics-based cartoons. But for this final episode, we're going to be asking... Is it all worth it? And by it, we mean all the hard work of putting energy and enthusiasm into research communication. So in this episode, we want to look at what we stand to gain from investing in those communication skills, introducing elements of empathy and emotion into our work, and crucially, earning trust. Exactly. I mean, obviously, our conclusion is going to be, yes, it's all worth it. (laughs) But I think it'll be inspiring to hear how. So do you want to go first? What have you got for me in this episode, Marianne? Okay, so our first guest is a man whose passion for his research has seen him through almost 40 years of frustration. 40 years? Yeah, think of this as a cautionary tale. Um, Henry Dick is a geologist and senior scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts. He's devoted his professional life to trying to drill towards the centre of the Earth. What I'm doing is I'm trying to find out what makes up the ocean crust, and uh, how much ocean crust there is. And also, there is this boundary uh, in the Earth called the Moho. And it's the first major seismic reflector in the Earth. When you bounce seismic, uh, send off an explosion, and the energy travels down through the Earth, it suddenly, a bunch of it reflects back. That indicates there's a change in the density and the uh, uh, physical properties of the rock. Scientists like Henry used to think that the moho was the point where the Earth's crust met the layer beneath, known as the mantle. But now they know that some parts of the ocean floor don't have a crust. Yes, you heard me right. What? Doesn't I know, it's weird. But they do have a moho. So if it's not the point where the crust meets the mantle, what could it be? So we have three layers, and it was thought that these are uniform, that the thickness didn't vary very much, and that you had these three layers everywhere. What we know now is that while that may be true in the Pacific Ocean, it's not true in the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic. What we now believe is that the crust in the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean is very different. And some of us think that that moho is actually an alteration front where water sinks into the earth through the, through the lavas, down through whatever dikes there are, and then alters the mantle to a very light rock known as serpentine. Have we misinterpreted things? Or is the ocean crust fundamentally different in all the Atlantic Ocean and all the Indian Ocean than what we we think? So if the Moho boundary is at the point that water can reach to, then that has massive consequences for our understanding of how our planet works. It means there might be more carbon and more water on the Earth than we've previously accounted for. And we know that there are microorganisms that live in those hydrated rocks under the sea. So, and this is like mind-blowing to me, there could be a greater biomass inside the Earth than there is living on the surface. What? I know. I feel like I've been living under a rock now then, because why don't I know that? <laughs> well, everybody should know this. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. And fundamentally, we basically don't know the, the basics of how the Earth is constructed. Because in school, everybody learns that there's a core and then there's a mantle and then there's a crust on the outside. Yeah. 
So now we know for certain that the school textbooks need to be rewritten, but we still don't know quite what to write there instead. Henry and all the other geologists in his field agree that to find the answers, we need to drill a hole to try and reach the rocks at the Moho and study them firsthand. That's easier to do at sea than on land, so Henry's team need time with a specialist drilling ship. Drilling the Moho was first attempted in 1961, and Henry himself has led drilling attempts in 1987, 1997, and most recently in 2016. But this is deep ocean drilling. It's difficult work. Failure is inevitable. Uh, If you've got a broken drill, a blocked hole, bad weather, any tiny detail can derail a whole drilling season. So basically, Henry hasn't been able to do the research he's set out to do for decades. He's determined to go again. So you found a good spot on the ocean floor. You know that the drill ship is capable of getting there and and doing the drilling. You've got the technical expertise on above ground with the scientists and with the team you work with. Is it just a matter of money? Well, this is money is always important because every drilling leg costs effectively ten million dollars, and a lot of people want those resources. And a lot of people uh, will will fight for them, and people in their discipline will fight for them to get those resources. NASA gets lots of money. They get the policy, they get the public imagination, they get the excitement of it being the brave new frontier and the hope for mankind. How come ocean exploration doesn't harness that same kind of power over the collective imagination? It is fascinating because this is a more important question than visiting uh, some asteroid out far out in space. This is the planet we live on, and this is fundamental to understanding its composition and how it evolves and why uh, plate tectonics works. And this so is how a very important piece of that puzzle. How come you're, and, you're losing the PR race then? Um, NASA is, was set up as a huge PR machine, but it is puzzling despite all the huge benefits that the space NASA exploration has done, that we can't spend in the oceans what amounts to, the, to one year's budget for something like the lunar program over 20 years. Is that, you know, there is these fundamental elements of our understanding of our own planet, these questions that have never been answered, and we're just not spending money to try and understand some of the most fundamental elements of our planet that we live on. And that is extremely frustrating to me. Okay, so despite these mind-blowing scientific revelations, (laughs) the ocean drilling programs aren't that well known by the public. And, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's because it's harder to imagine a journey to the centre of the Earth than it is a journey to the stars. TV and film take us to space all the time. All you need to do is look up into the night sky and the mysteries are basically right there to be pondered. But Henry and his team are adamant that this is too important to give up on. And why won't I give up? It's just my nature. I think it's really important, and it takes someone who's going to dedicate themselves, and if I fail, I fail. But by God, I'm not going to... I'll only acknowledge failure when they cover my, my body with earth and put me to rest. And even then, I may be sticking my arm out of the grave to try write one more letter to try and get people to <laughs> see common sense and to schedule this. I just cannot quit. And that's what it takes to make big things happen. 
Danielle, one of the things that really blew my mind about Henry and this this kind of quest to reach the moho mm. was the fact that in 1961, John Steinbeck was writing about this ocean drilling in Time magazine and he was comparing it like for like with the space race. Like, this is a final frontier for mankind. This is something we need to do because that's what humans do. They yeah. explore. And yet, more than 50 years later, we haven't done it. I know, yeah, but why is that? You know, because to me, it doesn't need to be one or the other. I think if you can capture the power of the collective imagination, then funding follows, profile follows, and you get to do your science. For some reason, they failed to capture the public imagination. And so we don't think it's important. And so it doesn't get funded. So I guess this one is is actually a really good example of of how important it is. You know, all the things that we've been talking about in this podcast series about, you know, different ways of communicating your work. It's so important, isn't it? Yeah, because it can change the the course of your professional career. It can change the course of your whole discipline. Now, Marianne, a big part of science communication that we haven't talked much about yet is communicating science to children. I love it when when you have an audience that's full of children. I think some why do the, you love it so much? Well, because I think some of the best questions I've ever had are from children. What's uh, your best question? Um, what does the cosmic microwave background sound like? <gasps> so, the cosmic microwave background is something that happened just after the Big Bang. Okay. So the beginnings of the universe. And it's sort of effectively the oldest light in the universe that was sort of imprinted on our sky when the universe was like just a few hundred thousand years old. And so I talk about this to children and, and she was so enthusiastic at the end. You know, her hand went straight up and uh, she was like, what does, it, what does the cosmic microwave background sound like? And I was like, I have no idea. What a great question that is. And it wasn't until years later that I um, I was working with a, a professor, a colleague of mine who was in digital signal processing, and he um, he took some of the the data that we'd taken um, when we were studying the cosmic background, and um, and he processed it. And so now I can answer the best question I've ever had. But the best question was from a child. What's the answer? Oh, it sounds really um, like a really eerie sort of sound. <laughs> Deeper than that. Ooh. Sort of like that. <laughs> Have you ever? You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Have you, when you've been talking to children, have you ever pitched it at completely the wrong level? <laughs> yes, I remember. Actually, this was sort of slightly off off tangent to to what I normally talk about. But um, I'd been asked to go in and talk to a group of um, school kids about scuba diving. Mm. I, I dive as well, and. Um, started to talk to them about the bends and they were about six and then every, every line I was like, and if you do this, you die. And if you do this, you die. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and then I don't know what I was thinking. And then I said, so who here has scuba dived or whose parents scuba dive? And all these like sad little worried faces started to put their hands up kind of going, mummy's going to die. <laughs> and I realised the error of my ways and had to <laughs> say, but you know, that doesn't have happen often and that's why we do lots of training and that's why we have the protocols. <laughs> <laughs> Traumatised a bunch of kids, sorry, if that was your child. <laughs> but it is a huge part of, of science communication, isn't it? Talking to that next generation and, and making sure that, that they are inspired by the scientists of today. I think so. And, and putting a, a face 
a, you know, a real human face to mm. what this concept of a scientist is. We are now able to talk to someone who works in just this very area. We're linking up to Jennifer Catraro. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. So it's great that you're a uh, you're joining us uh, live from Boston. Um, now, you've got some a really good story to tell us about science storytellers. What is it? So Science Storytellers is a program I started up a few years ago. Um, what we do is we sit kids down um, with scientists to interview them one-on-one -on -one in the manner of science journalism. We give them a reporter's notebook and a pen and a list of questions that um, a professional journalist may ask of a scientist. And when they've completed their interview, we ask them to share with us the beginnings of a story about their conversation. Wow, that's pretty cool. Where did that idea come from? <laughs> so that's um that's a bit of a of a story. Um, the idea came, frankly, out of a a bit of frustration <laughs> I was starting to experience um, several years ago. I'd paid some attention over over the years to the larger conversation around improving science literacy and combating science denialism. And much of that conversation um, in the research world tended to focus on, you know, increasing dialogue and not using what's called the deficit model of communication, which basically looks at the audience as an empty vessel that we just need to fill with more science. And, well... A lot of research shows that that's really not that effective um, and that what has more hope at changing hearts and minds is coming at people in a way that explores shared values and making connection and, you know, meeting people and building trust. And so I'd, you know, I'd, I'd heard some of this conversation over time, but I didn't really see a lot being done to really facilitate kind of a two-way conversation, you know, between scientists and, and the general public. And a little bit of a layer on top of that is also, I really didn't see a lot of people talking about, well, how can we improve our interactions with kids so that they, you know, embrace science and see it as something that they can have a voice in also. So do you think it adds to the to the learning experience of the children who are involved? Because this isn't about just observing a science demonstration or listening to a scientist in a one-way conversation. It's actually about sort of a, a two-way talking, one-on-one, -on -one, telling science stories. That's exactly right. So it's it's a type of active learning, um, which tends to really um, make more of an impression and stick with people. And it it gives kids, I think, a, a more of a sense of agency that they're really driving the show. And coming from education as well, um, you know, we know that when kids are given the opportunity to, in a sense, teach themselves and ask their own questions and find the answers, learning outcomes tend to be improved. And so that is one goal of science storytellers is, you know, to really put kids in the driver's seat here. What I love about this is that it just seems to be like a true knowledge transfer between sort of a, an expert and a learner, if you like. So between sort of the the, the child and, and the scientist and um and that and that scientists must feel much more like human beings rather than these sort of special people who are locked up in a in a laboratory somewhere absolutely and and that too is one of the goals of this program is to is to humanize scientists and to put a face to science and you know to let kids and of course the you know the parents and other caregivers who come along with them 
you know, to let them see scientists are people just like us. Nobody comes to this in a lab coat with goggles. They're, they're in jeans and t-shirts and very casual. And the whole experience is very casual. We're not behind a table. We set up chairs side by side to facilitate conversation one-on-one, almost as if you're at a coffee shop chatting with your friend. Yeah, that's really nice. I think that's, uh, I mean, on so many levels, this appeals to me, and I can I can understand immediately the power that that has as, an, as a sort of an experience that could genuinely change a child's life. That they can sit down almost as a, an equal with someone who's a, a kind of a proper scientist, and you're given the legitimacy of asking questions, and that grown-up special person has to answer you and take you seriously. That's hugely powerful for a child. Yes, it absolutely is. And among the questions that we suggest kids ask, so we, you know, we give them a little sticky note with bulleted questions. Um, one of the things we have kids ask scientists is, "Have you ever been wrong or made a mistake?" Oh, and great question. Thank you, thank you. My uh, my colleague Siri Carpenter um, thought that would be a great one for us to add, and she and it it turned out to be my favorite question by far. And. For kids to be given the permission to ask someone if they've been wrong or if they've made a mistake, I mean, that in itself is very empowering. And then for kids to hear from grownups, yeah, I was wrong all the time, you know, (laughs) it's mind-blowing for them. And the, the scientists also, you know, that's another thing they've commented on is I love that I was able to talk about all the times that I made mistakes in my lab or that was, <laughs> and like experiment therapy. didn't work. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's totally it's therapeutic for them. It's eye-opening for kids. And, you know, science is built on trial and error and mistake and improving from, you know, what we've learned. And I think that in some way that really speaks to how we still aren't really getting it right in how we're teaching science formally, that kids think there's a right answer. And, Science is just a list of facts. No, it's really it's really not. It's this process and and it can be fun, which these scientists really show them. The only thing that I think you need to do, Jennifer, now is is expand this and have scientists sitting in shopping malls, yeah. in prisons, in the teachers' staff rooms, so the educators can actually get a better handle on on what scientists really are. I think you need to wheel it out to all seven billion of us, please. <laughs> I would, if I can figure out how to do that. That is one of my main goals right now: is to figure out how do I scale this up and take it to the world. <laughs> and um, so, Jennifer, as you know, you know, we're talking in this episode about how we can engage the scientists of the future, and clearly, you're doing that. Um, what would your tips be for our listeners who work with children about getting them involved in science? Oh gosh, I think first of all, give them the time and space to 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 ask questions and then just listen to them. One thing I've seen with our booth is sometimes it takes kids a little while to warm up and feel comfortable talking with someone, but if you kind of just let them go, conversations will go in really amazing places. And I, I think sometimes we don't always respect that need to have time and space for learning. You know, I think sometimes we sort of want to rush through a demo or that sort of thing. And that's my biggest takeaway is is giving time and space and also listening and, you know, really recognizing that that kids are full of questions. You know, they are, I think they are scientists from the moment they are born. <laughs> you know, they're full of curiosity and tapping into that is 
you know, I think what we need to do. So any way of making science more more about conversation, more about telling stories, more about finding personal relevance, I think is really the way to go. Now, Marianne, it's time for our final guest in the series. Oh, bittersweet. It better be a good one. Oh, don't worry. I've got you. So the person I want to introduce you to is Mike Morrison. Now, Mike works in science communication now, but he did a PhD in organisational psychology. And so he's had that experience of, of having to go to a conference and doing a poster session. And pretty much every academic you talk to will will have to have gone to a conference and, and done a poster session before. And... Um, and it's the thing about poster presentations, I just find them dull and boring. Do you find them boring to do yourself about your own work as well as look at other people's? Well, it's a bit of both. It's this sort of experience of, you know, you're standing next to your poster and you want someone to, to come and talk to you. But then on the flip side, you know, as a, as a supervisor of PhD students, you go to poster sessions and you'll walk by and you're like, oh, no, I feel really bad because I've just walked past someone, but I just don't have time to read that one because it's so much full of text and, you know, mm. and I'm going to be there for 20 minutes and I've only got 30 minutes to see these 50 posters. So oh, It sounds like the worst type of speed dating. It's like science speed <laughs> dating yeah so Mike Ooh. Morrison um, he had just the same sort of experiences as I've explained there and this is what he proposes instead the basic gist of it is that scientists communicate tens of thousands of findings to each other every year they try to through academic poster sessions and everybody uses like the same old poster template so if we can improve the efficiency of that common template even by a little bit since everybody uses it it can have these massive ripple effects across science um, and so what I did was I took a shot at improving the default template, um, which is actually a really low bar by design standards. Um, so I released a video uh, earlier in March um, proposing a new design for default academic, a new default design for scientific posters. It caught on. It went viral across every field in science, as best I can tell. Um, and the new design kind of looks where the old design kind of looks like. Um, a wall of text or like paragraphs on a billboard um, and exactly that kind of silly. Um, the new design that I'm proposing um, as a default looks like kind of like a TV with speakers on the side, like a widescreen TV with speakers on the side. It has layers. So you have like a 10 second layer in the middle so you can learn the main finding as you're walking by. And then if you want more detail, you have like a 45 second layer where you can skim a little bit in the sidebar and learn more about the study methods and what they found in the background. And if you want more detail than that, then you can talk to the presenter and the presenter has a second sidebar with a sidebar with a cheat sheet and they can like show you stuff. And then if they want even more detail, then you can scan a QR code and get a copy of the whole paper. Um, so it really lets the attendee choose how much they want to interact with posters. And that's the basic gist. Yeah, I love it. I downloaded your template. Um, Great. watching one of your YouTube. It was brilliant. Really, really good. And so I sent it to my PhD students and they loved it, but they had a concern which really surprised me. Um, straight away, one of my PhD students came back to me and was like, this is really good. Thanks very much but we were a bit worried about how it's going to be received by colleagues. And I think <laughs> the what conformity actually, fear, it's so real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think what he actually meant by that was like senior colleagues mm-hmm. um, and maybe assessors of, of posters and things. So, so have you had sort of a, a varied response to the idea of posters? Sure. I, I think that 
you know, that super critical, hyper-intelligent judge who's going to hate you for breaking conformity, I'm starting to think he's a myth because I've gotten so much support from like every angle. And I've heard from so many people being like, oh my God, what would my colleagues think of me? But I've never actually heard from that colleague being like, I mean, a couple people, but like um, most people have had great experiences. Like when you try it, like you'll find that like, Everybody loves being communicated to efficiently. This design isn't a random idea. It's not just sort of like, oh, I thought this would be good. It's backed by like empirically based user experience design principles um, of reducing cognitive load, minimizing interaction costs, using progressive disclosure to get people to scale up their effort. Um, so there, there's a lot of science behind the design. So to me, to a certain extent, be dispelling that as an old scientist not wanting this fancy new design is kind of being anti-science in a little way, um, <laughs> which is kind of ironic to me. But yeah, don't um, worry about it. Just be brave. Yeah, It'll I'll be tell worth him. It. I'll tell him. Cool. Um, right. Do you think this is what's holding science communication back, the poster, or do you think there are other things? I think the biases that prevent change in things like posters are what's high, holding science communication back. If that makes sense. So I think like um, like one of the biases I've dealt with is like. Um, there's something called cognitive ease, right? Where like, if you make a task artificially difficult, people make attributions about why it's difficult. They'll be like, oh, it's because I'm dumb or because it's smart, right? Um, when really like, it could have been just like the design was bad, you know, like, it had nothing to do with like how good the study was or whatever. Um, and so I think like when I show people like a very clean minimalist poster, they're like, that's not science, right? But this dense wall of text to them feels harder. So it feels like good science, Right. Um, when had when the content of the poster, you didn't even read it. You have no idea if one was just like you know this this terrible study and one was a great study. Um, and so I think that in science communication, we have this bias to think that science has to feel hard to be good science. And I think it's true that science has to be very very hard to do, and it always will be. But the way we communicate and disseminate science and learn it doesn't have to be hard. Like we don't have to talk in five dollar awards. A lot of times, a, you know, a fifty cent casual award will do and communicate meaning more efficiently. And and you have this great YouTube video about let's make science user friendly. Just tell our audience about that because it's brilliant. Sure. So that's kind of like my, um, you know, the backstory on that. I haven't said this before, but I had a I had a really big health scare before that talk. Um, and I really was, if you've ever known somebody who's gone through a really bad health issue, you know, they're sort of like at the mercy of science. They're like mm. waiting on science to save them. And I just feel like science owes them efficiency. And I just wanted science to hurry up and save me. And I saw all these inefficiencies in it. And so that talk, I gave this two or three minute talk on just like, here's my perspective as, as a you know former user experience designer, like, a way we could speed up all of science. Um, and one of the examples, so as, as a short example in that, you may not know listening to this if you're outside of science, that like science barely uses the internet. So scientific articles do not have links. You cannot click a link in one article <laughs> to get to another article. That is the most insane. Like, and, and what you're doing right now, I know your listeners, you're rationalizing. You're like, it's science. There must be an advanced smart reason for that. There's not. Right? <laughs> Where we've had responsive design on the internet for 10 years, you know? Um, and so I gave up some examples of that um, and some examples of where it might head in the future if we if we did it well. Let's make science user-friendly and, and definitely your posters. They really do add this sort of fun element into, into science and into research. Do you ever get accused of dumbing down the science oh, of research? Of course. Oh, yeah, all the time. Which is, a, which is that thing again, right? It's sort of like if you make it easy... It can't be good science, right? Yeah, if you yeah. make it, if you if you make it easy to communicate, if you communicate it well, right, then it can't be good. It could be it, science has to be hard or whatever. First of all, like 
I think we need a dose of going the other way because we've been going, you know, make it harder, make it sound smarter for so many years, right? Um, but I think um, what I've seen is that A, people don't translate too far. People are, scientists are so trained in like nuance and detail that it's very difficult to get them to back off that at all. Much less, they don't go all the way the other way like and go clickbaity like people are worried about. But I also think that what we should aim for is if you've ever been in a room, I'm sure this, um, this happens in your field too, where you're with some legendary professor and they're looking at a graph, right? What they'll do when they look at that graph full of jargon is out loud sometimes, I've seen this like legend in the field read a graph in his area and be like, okay, so that means when I'm you know, pissed off, then I lose my ability to sort of you know, motivate myself or what, you know, like, translate it out loud into his like human <laughs> words, right? Even though it was like you know, seg- you know, negative affect affects self-regulation was what it said, right? Um, but like what we got to do is sort of pre-translate. Just say it the way you think it. Don't say it the way that sounds fancy, right? That way, because that reduces the cognitive effort of having to translate it yourself because that wastes resources. So just just speak like people think anyway, yeah. I think is the goal. And not, not necessarily to dumb it down. Amen to that. Definitely. I'm definitely with you. You come across as a really confident and self-assured researcher. Um, Thanks. Because <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I have exactly as much or more insecurity as the rest of the little baby grad students. Well, well, when you know, when you're you know when just talking to you now and and watching your YouTube videos and stuff, it's really great. But many of of my PhD students and many others are less so. No, they they come across mm-hmm. as as not very confident either. So so do you think others that are that are less confident um, or have sort of less extrovert personalities? Do you think right. all of this could work for them as well? Oh, sometimes better. Um, and I think they have to learn that it works, right? I think that's one of the things, if you never try it, you never get rewarded for it. And I think when you step out and you try to speak like a human, you try to translate, I think a lot of times you can get very positive feedback. And that that um, that really helps you move forward, I think, because um, it does work. It works better. Um, and I think uh, we should train people to step out of that that, that insecurity more and to show them that they don't have to conform. Because, I mean, the idea of conformity to me is insulting to science, right? Like, these, you, should, you should be people who push bounds all the time. That's your whole job, right? Um, and so that, that we have this conformity pressure, which is really real. I feel it, too, in science, um, is really kind of insulting to the whole idea of science. Um, and so I, I would really encourage them to just step out and, and watch that nothing happens bad. Like, um, that, and, um, yeah, I think we should be training and encouraging more. Um, and less tacit discouragement at the institution level. Wow, boom, great final guest. Great, he's a dude, isn't he? There's a lot to unpack there as well about scientists conforming and therefore ignoring actual science. I mean... That com- that takes us full circle, doesn't it? Because that kind of picks up stuff that we talked about in episode one, about how the fact that scientists are not immune to misinformation, ignoring science. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're all in the same boat, that we have to be mindful of being biased. Yeah. Right, so let's take a look at the Wiley Research Fictionary. What have we got to add in our final week? Well, this is what Mike had for us. So my word is posterspiration. So one of the big parts of being a designer is getting inspiration from other designers. Um, and so what I do is that whenever I see a billboard or an advertisement that I think would I could steal the format from for a scientific poster, I take a picture of it and put it in a folder called posterspiration. And I think that um, I would recommend you listening to this as a scientist to look at design for inspiration on design. Don't look to other scientists because they're just beginners at design. 
And this is what Jennifer had. The word I'd like to contribute is barf draft, which I use to describe the first initial draft of a story or other piece of writing that you just have to get out of your system before you can do anything else. It's a term I learned from a colleague in science journalism, and I use it every time I write. In a sentence, you'd say, I'd love to go for drinks with you just as soon as I finish this barf draft. And that means we've come to the time where we have to say goodbye. Oh, I know. I'm really sad. Me too. I feel like I've learned so much in such a, a fun and engaging way just doing this with you, Marianne. Me too. And not just from our guests, but from you, Professor George. <laughs> Genuinely. I know I sound like I'm not being sincere, but I really am. This has been amazing. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time interviewing scientists for public consumption on TV and radio or mm. whatever. But even for me, I think it's picked up um, preconceptions or, or kind of misconceptions that I've had about science or complexity or good ways to communicate. I'm definitely going to take stuff into my work as well. Yeah, and that's great, isn't it? And, and I for sure am. Um, you know, there's... I always felt like I was I was one of the better science communicators amongst my peers sometimes. But actually, you know, this... What people are doing out there is just amazing. I feel very confident that that I will be a better science communicator because of what we've learned. Let's change the world, man. (laughs) Well, we hope you've taken something away from this study shows as well. If you'd like to share your insights, your your science communication success stories, then tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. Thanks so much for listening to this study shows. Bye-bye. Bye. This study shows was presented by me, Marianne O'Hotter. And me, Danielle George. It's a Wise Budder production for Wiley Research. The producer was Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Wise Budder was Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research was Samantha Green. Mm-hmm.